0: from PRI Public Radio International it's live wire recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland Oregon it's live wire with actor and comedian Reese Darby musician and performer Ahamefale Aluo and comic book writer Kelly Sue DeConnick with music from Cataldo and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Elena, and thank you, everybody, for coming out to Livewire at the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon. We have an amazing show in store for you all. Uh, the theme that we have picked for this week is Origin Stories, uh, which uh, plays into all of our guests for one reason or another. And we asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater uh, uh, about their origin story, or at least the origin story that they wish they had. Right. The right. question that we, that we asked was, if you were bitten by a radioactive spider, what superpower would you hope to get?
2: Because that's the origin story of... Batman or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah I'm pretty yeah. sure. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Send your emails to Elena Passarello at livewireradio.org. I was thinking about, was thinking about my answer to this question to like, oh, what superpower would I hope to get? I would hope to be bitten by a radioactive spider that was also very punctual.
2: <laughs> a time spider.
1: So I could take on the superpower to me of being on time for things
2: it's just not a part of your daily practice.
1: I have such a hard time getting to things on time. And like, if I could just, you know, have it solved by some sort of spider bite, like I would take that over web slinging, or flying, or anything. <laughs> just being, arriving at things on time.
2: You know, you could just get a watch, that's, you know, you're, <laughs> you could get bitten by a watch. <laughs>
1: that's, that's actually the, that's what's so sad about this, this being my superpower I want, is that it is achievable. <laughs> like, it's not flying or, you know, anything else, shooting photons from my hands. It is basically leaving 10 minutes earlier.
2: But it feels impossible to you. Like, it feels like it's a it's humanly impossible. For
1: me, it seems to be. And I will make all these deals with myself about what time I'm going to leave, and then I will just... Stare at the clock or the TV or whatever it is and then just not leave and then it makes me a bad person I become I guess like the supervillain of these stories because mm-hmm. then I will text people that I'm looking for parking and I haven't even left the house <gasps> that's some Lex <laughs> Luthor type behavior <laughs> what would your what would your superpower be you'd want to get I want
2: to get bit by a spider that would turn me into a crow <laughs> yeah I think they have like, the sweetest life. And they're, they always seem to be busy and interested. They know a lot. They're kind of smart birds. They use language. They look like rock stars.
1: I never thought about crows as looking like rock stars, but there's definitely a point at which Grace Slick will turn into a crow. Oh, yeah. She will physically transform.
2: Heck, Grace Slick, Patti Smith, Nick Cave, all Johnny Cash has a kind of crow-like Keith Richards,
1: vibe. Keith Richards has been a crow for 20 years. Yeah,
2: yeah. I do think it's worth noting that neither of us decided to get superpowers that would like change the world or help humanity or do the things that superhero superpowers actually do. We're just trying to like show up on time and fly. And look look badass. And look badass.
1: Uh, What is the audience here at the Alberta Rose (laughs) Theater want their superpower superhero origin story to be?
2: The superpower Ariana would like to get is all food tastes like pizza.
1: That feels achievable. If yeah. you just eat pizza.
2: And they have it
1: almost everywhere now.
2: Um, okay, uh, here's one from Chris. Chris uh, would like the ability to turn into a squash. A really big squash. That might be the most Portland answer. <laughs>
1: I promise you we would not get that answer in Dallas. The
2: Chris's reasoning, though, I okay. think is pretty sweet. Chris says, so I could win all the county fairs. So <laughs> glory, right? <laughs>
1: Uh, We have somebody waiting just off stage who actually knows all about origin stories because she creates them for a whole host of characters in comics and TV. Characters like Captain Marvel, who you might have recently seen in the film Captain Marvel, (laughs) which earned over a billion dollars at the box office. What? Uh, She's also the writer of the intense and intriguing comic Bitch Planet. Also, uh, she's the creator of the series Pretty Deadly. Please welcome Kelly Sue DeConnick to (laughs) LiveWire. Kelly Sue, welcome to LiveWire.
3: Thank you. Uh,
1: Kelly, I, I wanted to start off by asking you about your relationship with comics as a kid.
3: I grew up on Air Force bases, and because in this country, the genre of superheroes dominate comic books, um, which they don't all over the world, but here it's like 90% are superhero comics, um, that comics would be big on military bases, so people who are drawn to service would be drawn to this genre that favors, like, heroism and sacrifice uh, makes a lot of sense. It was a really big deal on base, and I used to get, um, I would get my allowance, and I would go to the Stars and Stripes bookstore, and I would buy comic books there for 45 cents a piece, Uh, but then I figured out that if I waited until Saturday and went to the swap meet where the GIs were shipping out and getting rid of their stashes, then I could get like a stack for a buck. Oh, um, nice. And, and so, what were you
1: into as a kid? And by the way, don't dig to the bottom of that stack because you're definitely finding a Playboy.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's the reason you buy yeah, the stack. Yeah. Um, like, like
1: what was some kind of influential stuff for you that, uh, as a kid?
3: Uh, I really, really liked Vampirella. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it um, makes a lot of sense that I would go on to write feminist comics. That's just, like, one plus two. And um, I liked the DC horror anthologies, and I loved Wonder Woman, of course. Um, yeah. So, my mom used to give me Wonder Woman comics as, like, a reward for doing the dishes. That was, like, my, my thing. That's really?
2: awesome. Yeah, it like, is. It's like, pretty great. You support, like, good job doing your chores, washing the dishes. Here's a feminist icon.
3: Yeah. You no, <laughs> probably it was, never it watched
2: a dish in her life. It was pretty great. And
3: also, uh, uh, Wonder Woman comics in the mid-1970s were not quite as feminist as we remember them. Right. So there was like a lot of bondage.
1: Yeah. Uh, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh, creator of comics and television and all kinds of uh, entertaining and uh, thought-provoking things. You, uh, I read an interview with you where you said, when you're talking to a new writer, you subject them to something called the sexy lamp test. Yeah. That sounds like an HR violation, honestly. Yes. I, say, I should say, you, you, you analyze work through this question of, of a, a sexy lamp, right? Yeah,
3: so, so there's this thing called the Bechtel test, uh, which is, a, it's, a, it's a great measuring device, but sometimes in comics, it's a little advanced for us, right? So the Bechtel test is, um, are there more than two named female characters? Do they speak to one another? And is it about something other than a man? Those are the three criteria. Uh, And it's kind of shocking the number of things that fail. But I was like, we need something simpler than that for comics. So we need basic humanity level test. So my test is the sexy lamp test, which is if you can remove a female character from the story and replace her with a sexy lamp, and the plot still functions, then you need another draft.
1: Do you feel like things are... are, Is progress being made in the world of comics towards fewer sexy lamp stand-ins?
3: Yes, progress is being made. Progress is being made not only in comics, but um, in all of media, but it's not being made fast enough and it's not as significant as it should be. And, you know, I haven't memorized the most recent statistics, but um, for representation in major films in 2016 you were more likely to see a speaking alien woman on screen than you were a Latina or Asian woman. Yeah. Um, And we were, I believe, 16% of protagonists. Uh, We are 51% of the population. We are the one minority that's not actually a numerical minority. Uh, And I think the 16% was down, like, two points from 10 years prior. So... Yeah, it's not it's not great news. Um, so we have to kind of keep pushing and be bitchy about it, really, frankly.
1: Um, I want to talk also about Captain Marvel, but we do have to take a very short break. So let's do that. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We are talking to Kelly Sue DeConnick, and we'll be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement which leaves your body kind of achy Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality after a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend Fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y ycom slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Right over there is Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking uh, to writer Kelly Sue DeConnick. You are credited with helping revive this character of Captain Marvel, uh, which even probably non-comic book-obsessed folks know about because of the movie Captain Marvel, which came out, which was a huge, huge hit. Brie Larson played Captain Marvel. $1.1 yeah. um, $1. 1 billion or something in sales. Say
3: that again. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, re- I thought it was a misprint or something. I didn't even know movies make a billion dollars yeah. in this day and age. Yeah, a
3: billion with a B.
1: That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. When that When that film came out, I mean, were you checking various websites? Were you really personally invested in, I, not, I don't just mean financially necessarily, but just like invested in how the movie was doing as a, as a, as a retort? Oh yeah, oh, oh like, what yeah. Was, what were you like that weekend? Oh, like
3: reload, 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 yeah. I was super, super petty, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, because for years we've been hearing about how, oh, we can't have, like they would take the female characters out of the action figure packs Like, literally, there was the Avengers action figure pack with no Black Widow, because, well, dudes are not going to buy the action figure pack if there's a Black Widow figure in it, apparently, which, like, have you met a dude? Yeah. Uh, Because they like lady dolls, you know? (laughs) Um, So there's this thing called targeted marketing that happened in the 80s. Basically, the short version is they decided that because women are low status in our culture and men are high status, if you spend more of your marketing dollars marketing to men, women will cross-identify and buy up, but men won't buy down. So your money's better spent there. It's absurd and it's unhealthy. And, you know... And the thing is the world is on fire and we need all hands on deck yeah. and everybody has to be able to participate to the extent of their abilities. We can't marginalize people because they have gifts we need. You yeah. know?
1: I spent some time on the Carol Danvers Wikipedia page I've this been there. week. And um, it's extensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what's it like to be creative with something that already exists and that a lot of people already have a lot of feelings about?
3: It's hard. <laughs> um, you do not want to alienate the people who've supported that character for mm. you know 70 years or whatever it is. But it, I think it's always about going down to fundamentals. You're not looking for what's aspirational about them because that's abundantly obvious, right? What you're looking for is what's human about them. With Carol, or with any of these characters, my question is always like, where does their pain come from? Because it's the easiest place for us to find empathy with another human being, right? And so for Carol, my notion of where her pain came from was she had this um, thing in her backstory where, where her father, who was a construction foreman, Um, couldn't afford to pay for all three of his kids to go to college. And so he tells Carol, you know, you're not going to school because you got two brothers and you're just going to get married anyway. Um, And so Carol enlists in the Air Force actually to pay for school. So her her wound is this idea that she, she doesn't matter as much. She's not of as much value. She's not as good a bet as her brothers. And then if you can connect that to their power set, it's even better, right? So with Carol, she's constantly sort of trying to outrun everything. She has. She can fly, she's super fast, she's super strong. So it's all about, I'm good enough. Trying to prove I'm good enough. And that's incredibly human,
2: right? This is why I can't see an argument that comics aren't art, because you're looking at the human condition... And then you're looking at this trope, this 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 genre, right? And you're making yeah. these connections. And then you're doing it in these amazing spaces that involve concision and limitation and Yet, tight and, language. And you know,
3: and, and it and it's yes, it's big. Yes, it's overpowered. Yes, it's it's uh, it's a power fantasy. But like, art has existed in big, overpowered. You know, in, like, yeah. uh, like Shakespeare's huge. Shakespeare is is huge. <laughs> Commedia dell'arte, theater <laughs> of the absurd. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, they, these are. Melodrama. Melodrama is incredibly powerful. It is real big,
2: you guys. And to be fair, a lot of women in Shakespeare could be played by sexy lamps.
0: That's true.
2: (laughs) This is Live Wire Radio.
1: (laughs) From PRI. We're here with Kelly Sue DeConnick. Uh, That's Elena Passarello. I'm Luke Burbank. Um, I'm curious about... Uh, How you boil down the language, Kelly, when you're writing, because when I'm reading one of your comics, it's the actual words that make it onto the page might be fairly spare at times. Right. But there's just got to be a mountain of story behind that. Yeah. Like, what's the process like for creating the story and getting it down to what it ends up being on that page when I'm reading something like uh, Pretty Deadly?
3: So when you're writing a comic book script, it's very much like writing a teleplay or a screenplay. Um, It's a letter to the artist. You're really telling the artist the story, and then the artist will interpret the story visually. But the only thing that you write as the writer that the reader will see is that dialogue. And so you have to Mm. be really disciplined about what you choose to put on. So I have a test for myself, which is everything... That goes on the page must either push the plot forward or tell me something I need to know about character, or ideally do both. So it requires a great deal of discipline, actually. Yeah. That's
1: incredible because having just kind of been immersing myself in a lot of your work the last week or so, I'm having all that experience as a reader, but I have no idea, like, what's, you know what's happening behind the page, that you're basically kind of moving me through that experience.
3: But you, know, but you are, as a comic book reader, you're much more active than you are as a television watcher or a film watcher, right? That is a completely passive experience. You sit, the film happens, whether you look away or not, it happens at the pace that the filmmaker has decided, right? With a comic you read at at your own pace and all of the action of the comic actually happens inside your head. So everything that happens, everything you hear, every expression on that character's face that touches you is actually your own and that to me is incredible.
1: Kelly Sue DeConnick everybody right here on LiveWire. Thank you so much. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder. But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Don't go anywhere because coming up we've got comedian Reese Darby who did not actually realize how huge Flight of the Concords was going to be when Jermaine Clement one of the show's creators invited him to audition to play their inept
4: manager Murray and so Jermaine said would you play our manager we've got this idea that you know we and I and I sort of looked at my schedule and I thought oh, I don't know what does that entail you know I've got I've got some heavy drinking later tonight
1: <laughs> one of the Weirdest and most interesting interviews we've done in a long time is coming up on Livewire. All right, this is Livewire Radio from PRI. This week we are talking about origin stories. And uh, we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, uh, if they were bitten by a radioactive spider, what superpower would they hope to get? And uh, those answers have been passed forward. Elena, what are you seeing?
0: Here's
2: one from Alex. Alex would like to be able to fly three inches off the ground. <laughs> so my question to you is, do you, do you have any insight as to why only three inches? I'm, I can't figure that, that one out. <laughs> He's five foot nine. So he'd be six, six two. feet tall. <laughs> this is just
1: about being six foot two.
2: You could just ask to be six feet tall uh, as part of your. I guess that's not a superpower,
1: yeah. though. Yeah. You just have to hope nobody looks at your feet in relation <laughs> to the ground. Oh, did you see Alex? Yeah, he's pretty tall. Did you see his feet? They're not on the ground.
2: You know where it would be really great at concerts? Right? And you're standing up at a concert and somebody stands in front of you and they're taller and then you just hover up three inches. Yeah. That would be perfect. Okay. I understand. I have this, this audience card really hits me where I live. Steve would like to uh, be in control of the temperature of beverages, ice cold beer, hot coffee. It's always the perfect temperature.
1: Wow. That would be amazing. Yes.
2: Yes. Well done, Steve. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, James sort of went in another direction. James' superpower uh, would be being able to play any song flawlessly on the guitar. Which I mean, imagine, like, just imagine all of the fun that you could have. Like, listen, I could play half of "Free
1: Fallen by Tom Petty in eleventh grade, <laughs> and I scored with the chicks. <laughs> half of "Free Falling."
2: Why? But there's only two chords in the whole song.
1: Yeah, like- I only knew one of them. <laughs> Imagine if you do every song flawlessly on guitar. That is so cool. Nice. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're talking about origin stories this week. Our next guest was last on Livewire when he was in the midst of exploring his own origin story through a 10 movement experimental pop opera comic storytelling piece called Now I'm Fine, which received rave reviews. Now he's back with a new piece blending comedy, music, and stories from his life. The show is named Susan. For his mother, please welcome the multi talented Ahame Fale Oluo back to Livewire. <laughs> Hello, Aham. Hey, how's it going? Luke? Welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks. Your last show, now I'm fine, was really incredible. Um, I'd never really seen anything like it. Um, it. How do you follow that up? I mean, you have this new show out now, and a lot of it is about your mom. Like, like, do you feel pressure from how successful Now I'm Fine was?
5: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it, successful in extent. No one knows who I am. Like, it's not it's, it's successful in, in the world that it lives in and, and everything like that. And it, it it beyond building expectations. That previous show, you know, I I really started working separately as a musician, working separately as a, a comic, but the second you start putting those together, all of a sudden you're a, th- a theater artist. Uh, and I didn't have any experience as a theater artist, so it was uh, a thing that happened organically over a long period of time, and it didn't; there were no expectations. So this kind of, it's a totally different process, you know. We kind of have a little bit of funding from the beginning, um, and we have a lot less time, you know, to make it because it's, People are giving you money, so you have to do it. Um, how how does your mom feel about the fact that she is a big part of this show? My mom loves it to an extent that I can't understand because <laughs> <laughs> because you know I, I've been doing these 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 work in progress shows, um, building the show. Um, I love my mom, and the narrative surrounding that is is about love and acceptance and all of the, all of those things. But with finding that balance, you have to include a lot of. Real life, and I'd say the earliest versions of the show maybe included a little bit too much real life, and uh, you don't necessarily re- realize that when you're writing it down, but then when your mom is sitting in the front row, which she did, I was like, Oh, I maybe shouldn't have written that down. Uh, and so the first show, I, I was like, I, I'm like watching looking at my mom while I'm saying these things, I'm like, She's gonna be. So man, and then I was so just like, "Oh, that was great! I loved it." Really, like, all of it? Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fr- the very first show, I like hinted to my mom that maybe she didn't have to go to uh, it, and then and then I I got on stage, and it's a dark a dark theater like this, darker than this, and there was literally only one seat that was still in my light, one person that course. I could see. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that's where she decided to, to sit. Oh, that, that must her, have been so distracting. It was incredibly <laughs> distracting. But, you know, it, it, it kind of you know pushes you to pushes you to, to do better.
1: Uh, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Ahame Fale Oluo, who has a new show coming forth called Susan. Um, uh, your sister, the writer Ijeoma Oluo, has been on this program. Yes. And we have talked to her about her experience of being a person of color whose mother is not a person of color. Yes. And trying to kind of... Span that distance is is that in any way part of this show? What has your experience been around that?
5: Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's some of that. It comes into it in in very you know specific personal ways, but I don't know that I was really trying to address that in like a, a general way. But my mom is from Kansas. She's Episcopal. That's about as white as you can. <laughs> that's, like, that's like a high level yeah. of whiteness. Yeah.
1: And then your father is from Nigeria.
5: Correct. And yeah. so
1: the other part of this show is that you you took a trip to Nigeria. Yeah,
5: yeah. And my, and my father passed away a long time ago, and I actually never got a chance to get to know him. And that's kind of part of the narrative of the previous show. Um, and so I went to Nigeria and spent time in Nigeria um, long after my father had passed. So um, it was kind of taking a look at, at that life, that family that exists over there, um, but not really through the lens of of him, through the lens of of what's left, through the lens of the siblings I've never met. You know, it's a very messy story with a lot of people and um, trying to figure this out without the primary architect there to to guide me.
1: Did you um, go into that experience with expectations about, like, how it was going to be and also how close you were going to be with this family that you hadn't really known or what it meant? I, I was... I met a brother who I'd never met till two years ago, yeah. and it really stressed me out because I was like, I got a lot of people in my hair already. Yeah, I got a lot of family. I don't need like more family. Do I? Ha- is this, do I have to call these people on Christmas? It was yeah. a huge relief to me to realize, no, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> they're it- nice. <laughs> but like, I was very stressed about what my new obligation was going to be to this family.
5: It's and it's really tough because in in Nigeria, you know, I have I have I think maybe fourteen siblings in Nigeria. And they, they want to talk on the phone, but like the connection's always really bad. And then the, like there's a strong accent and it's like, so you want to sit on the phone and have us not understand anything that either of us is saying for a very long period of time. <laughs> uh, it, and it's, you know, it's a thing that I've done a couple of times, but I'm like, you know, I don't need 14 siblings. I, like, right. I, I have enough siblings that I like. My sibling, I, I have a sibling cash that's very right. full. So, did you
1: know that going in, or did you just learn that after a couple of mildly frustrating phone conversations? One where phone you... conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're talking to Aha Mefale Oluo uh, about his uh, new show coming out called Susan. One of the things that I know you talk about on the show is that you are the father of some teenage girls who are almost, you know, grown adults. adults.
5: Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: you were young as a father, and the yeah. peculiarity is about being basically like still a relatively young man living in a house with daughters who are becoming adults yeah, and mostly the marijuana implications of that.
5: Yeah. That everyone spends all their time pretending like they don't know that everyone else smokes pot. Like <laughs> it's just, it's a, uh, it's uh, a, <laughs> that's, that's what, that's our game. That's what we do. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, I mean, not that I want to try to keep comparing our lives cause we've obviously yeah. had very different lives, but I had a daughter when I was very young, and I think I overdid it on the dadding yeah. to try to really, like, establish, like, even though we're only 17 years apart, <laughs> like, she would find me in the study, like, smoking yeah. a pipe, which I don't even do, <laughs> but I was like, I think I saw a dad do that once. Yeah. Did you have any sense of that, of trying to really be a
5: ver- a super solid dad because you were a young father? I was a musician, so, <laughs> I, I mean, kind of, you know, I I was a single dad, we lived in a small apartment, like the three of us for, you know, a long, long time. And there's a lot of different ways to parent, you know, my, my mom was kind of a chaotic parent, which, you know, had its benefits and drawbacks. And one of the benefits is like, I love my mom so much, but you can't tell me what to do. Cause I've seen, yeah. I've seen what you do. So you can't, and I think there's a little bit of that, like with, with my kids, my kids are super wonderful, responsible, you know, uh, soon to be adults but they've seen evidence that I am still a relatively young person. You know, it kind of creates a different set of rules where my kids can't smoke pot in front of me. I know that it happens, and I try and help them not get caught. Yeah. Because is, is, I like to not deal sure. with it. And, uh, and not getting caught is a huge part of growing up. And uh, <laughs> um, So yeah. I'll be giving some parenting classes yes. after the... <laughs> You want to learn my techniques.
1: Yeah. My daughter once asked me with a total straight face if we were the same age. Like, (laughs) that, which is a sign that I I got at that a little bit too young. Um... Aham, it's, it's, uh, it's great having you back on the show. It also occurs to me that uh, between your multiple appearances on the show, your sister Ijeoma's appearances, and your wife is the writer, Lindy West, who's been sure. on the show a million yeah. times, you guys are really the first family of Livewire. Yes, I don't know absolutely. if that's an honor or not, but you're like... <laughs>
5: no family has been on this show more than you guys. When do we get our own dressing room? That's, yes, that's... <laughs> I know.
1: Well, you guys need to get a better writer. Uh, Aham, thank you so much for being back on the show. Aham Aphile Oluo here on (laughs) Livewire. Our next guest did not take the usual path to comedy stardom. He started off as a soldier and Morse code signaller for the New Zealand Army. But eventually landed what I'd say is one of the funniest TV roles of the last 20 years, playing Murray, the world's most inept talent manager on Flight of the Concords. I see you're familiar with the program. You've all seen him in many films on stage doing stand-up and now here on LiveWire. Please welcome Reese Darby to the show. God, I wish this was a television show. Because that was a heck of an entrance. Oh,
4: you should have seen me. What a somersault. Yeah. Straight off the speaker stack. So
1: graceful and yet so brave.
4: It's all my training. You know, I can't stop being awesome.
1: Yeah. Hey, on the subject of which, uh, is it true that did your mom really encourage you to join the New Zealand Army to sort of toughen you up at 17?
4: Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't have much fatherly influence, uh, him not being around. Uh, so I was kind of raised by my mother and my three sisters and my nana, and, which was great, you know. I, 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 I remember playing with paper dolls, dressing up and things and I think mum started to get worried (laughs) but I actually joined uh, in the New Zealand uh, arena that's what I call New Zealand you know just as an aside it's actually a continent did you know that I did not I didn't realize that Have you heard of Zealandia (laughs) Zelandia. <laughs> you know how there's I think eight continents?
1: <laughs> I thought there were seven, but are we adding Zealandia to the list?
4: Yes! <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs>
4: we're the eighth one. Yeah. But we're sunken. So Google it, Google it now. But this is actually true. Yeah. There is a So yeah, everything I say is true. Just it's because of the voice, isn't it? I... Oh he likes to lie. <laughs> He's a weirdo. So
1: in other words, I didn't know this. New Zealand is a continent, but most of it's underwater. So we don't give it enough credit.
4: Underwater. We look like two islands with an extra bit on the end. You know we have three islands: North Island, South Island, and (laughs) Stuart. It's true. Why can't I just be serious?
1: Uh you do a lot of different kinds of comedy. You're a performer, obviously, Flight of the Concords, You do stand-up. Uh, did, did stand-up come first? Did that come before you started
4: doing acting How on came camera? How dare you? <laughs> did you Google my career or not? <laughs> no, I, I actually started as a comedy duo uh, because it was myself and Grant, and we were called Recently Granted. Yes. <laughs> And so we were, and you can p- pull up some clips now. Sure, we'll put those in in post. <laughs> and, then, and then I went solo when Grant, he decided to stay behind. He was sort of dating a solo mum. So I moved on. <laughs> and then I did my own thing for a while and then stand up. You know, I loved it. But it was always, for me, I grew up uh, being a... Being obsessed with a British comedy, uh, Monty Python, and all the BBC comedies. And yeah, uh, yeah. so um, I always wanted to be part of a sketch troupe. So, doing, even doing stand up, I, I, I played various characters and I do kind of a, a very physical comedy. So, you know, I become not only different characters, but also objects.
1: Like Transformers, who got a bad assignment. Yeah. Like one becomes like a deck chair?
4: Yeah, that's one of my pieces. <laughs> and I like doing sound effects as well. So I would really do it. I'd do all the doors opening. You know, I'd do the sound effects of helicopters and sirens. A bit like, you know, the Michael Winslow. He was a bit sure. of a hero growing yeah. up. Yeah, Police Academy yeah. movies. Yeah, absolutely. I used to watch Police Academy and think, wow, that guy's amazing. And I didn't like even, I didn't kind of like at that point start uh, rehearsing my own sounds. But as a, as a kid playing... In my backyard with my little figurines, I would do all the sound effects of, you know, the lightsabers and, and the spaceships and things. And I would be very creative. What I'm trying to say is I had no friends. <laughs> <laughs> what about
1: when, when you were in the military? Were you, like... Even less friends. <laughs> were you, like, in a, you know, in a foxhole or behind some position where there's, like, important military stuff yep. going on, and you're just wanting to, like... Do noises and mm. try to make the other soldiers laugh.
4: Well, I would, I would, and I would, I could do the sounds of machine guns and things. Which, <laughs> so I was that. that whole seems thing.
1: very dangerous in that setting.
4: <laughs> Good, go, run! <laughs> Here comes a helicopter! <laughs> you know, the whole thing. Like, oh my God. <laughs>
1: We are talking to Rhys Darby here on Livewire, sort of. Uh, Rhys, how did you become a part of Flight of the Conchords?
4: Well, I won a raffle, and... Wow. No, I... um, It was a government election. Yeah, that's how they do it in New Zealand? The whole country had to decide. Uh And it was just, I was in Edinburgh at the time, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Right. Uh, They were there. I was there doing my own solo show in front of, you know, 12 people. Um, (laughs) A huge, it was a big hit. Yeah. Uh, Twelves of audience members. (laughs) Yeah, so many. Um, The full dozen. Uh, (laughs) One night, the baker's dozen. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Had you get another seat in? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I was there. Jermaine came up to me, said, "Look, we've been approached by the BBC to do a like a radio show pilot to for uh, this guy uh, Will, uh, who decided uh, he wanted to record sort of a, a loose pilot with the Concords, um with his mini disc player <laughs> and a microphone for the radio situation." And so Jermaine said, would you play our manager? We've got this idea that, you know... We, and, I, and I sort of looked at my schedule and I thought, oh, I don't know. What does that entail? You know, I've got, got some heavy drinking later tonight. <laughs> and I just, on a whim, thought I'd do it. And I got in there and, uh, and so we completely improvised. Uh, I had no idea what being a band manager was, you know. <laughs> the only thing I could relate it to was sort of back to my military days and also... Um, uh, school and so I, that's why i called a roll call uh so i just <laughs> straight away that was the first thing we did so that was from this radio pilot yeah. something that is a genius part of the actual television became the thing yeah It was like okay band meeting that was the first thing i said and then they're like they're sitting right in front of me and then there's this guy will saunders with his recorder from the bbc Loving it, guys, loving it. And uh, we're, we're just improvising. And I said, OK, band meeting. And then I just thought the first thing I would do would call, call the roll, you know, like access who's here. Let's see who's here. OK, Jermaine. <laughs> well, you can see I'm here. I know, but you've got, I've got to write it down for the roll. So just to clarify, it's a yes from you. OK, Brett. Present. Good. I like that. We should say that from now on. Present, I think. And I'm present too, so I'm marking me down.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I, as a huge fan of, of Flight of the Concords, I always wondered how much of it was improvised, how much of it was scripted. Sounds like, considering the origins were improv, was, was that also the case when you guys were shooting the television show?
4: Well, we definitely had to have scripts for H- HBO, obviously, and so it was all scripted. But uh, we started to lift off from those scripts fairly early on, especially with the band meetings. It was huh. the, kind of the three of us uh, in that mode where we really started to try and make each other laugh, particularly me. I just wanted... Because Jermaine, if you don't know him, is the, he just laughs at anything. He, he, he'll crack up the quickest and the fastest. And at some point, these two guys, like Jermaine and Brett, were laughing at s- so much during a band meeting that they were, brought, they were taken out of the scene. <laughs> and they had to go and sit down by, like, the, you know, where they have the, the video village or yeah. whatever you want to call it, um, you know, like, down the hallway. And I'm talking to two empty chairs because the, cam- the camera's on me and i'm just going okay guys now you've got a, i've got have got you a gig but you, you know whatever the dialogue yeah. is and then i can still hear them laughing like <laughs> i can hear this <laughs> i can still hear you and so they were told to go back into their trailers you know and as but this is the kind of this this show was so genuinely great for us we're friends we, we were in America for the first time. We, were, we couldn't believe the situation we were in. We didn't even know HBO was a big thing. You know, we, <laughs> we thought, oh, this, what sort of network's this? You know, <laughs> uh, But it turns out it was a good one, um, <laughs> if not the best, uh, because if it was anything else, we would have been uh, you know, subjected to so many more rules, and they really let us do whatever we wanted. Um, so it was, it was meant to happen I think
1: there's a particular it's, it's so hard for me to not want to just you know deep dive on various things that the Murray character in front of the Concords has, has done that just absolutely slay me but there's one in particular where you talk they want to stay Brett and Jermaine need to stay somewhere and they want to stay at your house and you say like uh, I kind of grab people in my sleep <laughs> and they keep they're like well we could be down the hall and you're like I'll probably still grab you <laughs> And it's a, it's, I think you, the character says it's a holdover from my military days. Is that from your real life in any way, shape, or form? You see, you're so
4: good. <laughs> you, you're good. You, you can tell. <laughs> but, I mean, there is... There's a, the best comedy, there's truth in it. And <laughs> but it was so playful and yeah. so silly, and yeah. it's getting the tone right. And the, the best part about Concords is that you know, you could watch it with your kids. It was, for the most part, there was a couple of dodgy bits, but <laughs> for the most part, especially with teenagers, I had so many parents come up to me and say, oh, I would, this is the show that I connected with my teenagers with. Other, no other show could do this. Um, and, that, and that made us feel good, because we didn't have to go below the belt for comedy. We, we kept it clever, we kept it um, interesting and, and really silly, and that was the right tone. Yeah, I, I can tell you that... And that sh- there's not enough shows like that.
1: If, if, I, if I'm talking to somebody and they, like, they also like Flood of the Concords, I, like, I know that I will have something in common with this person. It's a good sort of sorting right. mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, they get this.
4: Yeah, and if they haven't heard of it, then you go, oh.
1: Yeah, no. <laughs> this conversation is over. See you later, mate. That's Reese Darby, everyone. We've got to take a quick break. This is Livewire. We'll be back with more Reese Darby in just a minute. Hey, special thanks this episode to Kelly Griffin of Seattle, Washington, and Jim Pirrette of Northfield, Minnesota. Kelly and Jim are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month. And we are so thankful for that support because it is genuinely what allows us to keep doing the show. Turns out it's extremely important. So a huge thanks to Kelly and Jim for making this episode of Live Wire possible. Hey, welcome back to Live Wire. We're talking to Reese Darby.
6: (laughs) Oh! Reese Darby, yeah! I love that guy.
1: Yeah. Uh, Reese, you've been so nice to hang out with us here. I want to ask you about another project that you have. You just got back from the Toronto Film Festival. You're in a film called Guns Akimbo,
4: which is the the least kid-friendly thing that you've done. For sure, for sure. I would not let my kids watch it, yeah. I mean, the guy, uh, Jason, great New Zealand director, his previous film was called Deathgasm. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's a high-paced action, um, you know, there's lots of guns, lots of uh, violence and stuff like that. It's cartoon violence, but it reminds me, I guess, a little bit of kind of your John Wick, and people absolutely love that stuff. So I, I, don't, I think it's just it's the adrenaline of it, and it's absolutely just entertainment. I, mean, I could debate for hours gun violence in movies and, sure. and, 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 and video games is the other one, and, and, I, and I talked about it with Jason, who made guns akimbo, and we talk about the human lust for bloodlust and for, for killing and things like that, which has been throughout history. And as a person who's not a gamer or whatever, you look at it and you go, oh my God, this is just really wrong. But once you get in it and you see this, it's so completely shifted aside from the reality of anything like that, it's hard to comprehend, but it's, it's just not the same. And so I think that's the same with these, these video game type movies, is that it's putting it in a, in a platform where it's, it's safe and it's not gonna do anything, and it is entertainment. And it is entertainment. Live wire! Did you really
1: have to look at the sign to remember oh. what show it is? You know what, Reese? Honestly, I do, like, I do that like six times a show. Reese Darby, everybody, here on
6: LiveWire.
1: Our musical guest, this hour's origin story, starts in Moscow, Idaho. Their 2017 album Keepers was called Nostalgic and Effortlessly Poetically Profound by Nylon. Their new album is Literally Main Street. Please welcome Cataldo to Livewire. Now, this was total serendipity, this show that we had booked. Uh, Cataldo and also Aham, you guys have collaborated before, independent of Livewire, and we had no idea until we got you all in the same room.
6: It's so true. Yeah, Aham wrote uh, all the horn arrangements for uh, a record I think called Gilded Oldies and played trumpet and recruited all the talent. And so I couldn't sort of help ourselves here when we were both in the same room. We decided to jump on stage again. Yeah. And, and what is the name of this song? Uh, this song is called When You First See the Waves.
1: This is Cataldo and Ahame Fale Aluo here on Livewire.
6: You were just a kid, and you were 16. Driving too fast but you hadn't been drinking. Where with no sleep wrapped your car around a pole by the 14th hole, the Alks square putting green. You were probably gonna go to school out of state if you kept up your grades. Maybe USC, you want to live in a said hi at most once or twice so it felt strange it felt wrong it felt profane for me you were right at the edge of my page some, you were right at the center babe I was throwing rocks into the depths of their pain what a faint little splash they make and don't life just happen on a regular day that's when I first grew away i
1: That's Cataldo and Ahameh Filet right here on Livewire. Thank you so much. All right, that's going to do it for our show. Thank you so much to our guests, Reese Darby, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Ahameh Filet Oluo, and Cataldo.
0: LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, the Jupiter Hotel, and Fully. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketer.
1: Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A Walker Spring Sam Tucker and Ethan Fox Tucker.
0: Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by Randy Hastings. And our on air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio.
1: Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff.
0: Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Kip Silverman of Portland, Oregon, and Andrew John of Minneapolis, Minnesota.
1: For more information about our show or to listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.